Nice little buffer. Gonna draw it in there. Ah, golf. Now watch that edge. Watch that edge. A noble sport. It's so soft. A civilized sport. That would have been gone in in the. Maybe not the best use of vast swathes of land, but that's neither here nor there. It's a sport that changes slowly. Some might say glacially. A sport that prizes tradition and moderation and obtrusively bright sweater vests. Issues with a swing with a tree. Until now. A new rebel tournament has sprung up, bankrolled by one of the world's richest countries with one of the world's most notorious political regimes. A golf tournament funded by Saudi Arabia is asking questions of how the sport is run and what, if anything, the sport stands for. But it's not without its detractors. In the view of the Washington Post, what we're seeing is a government trying to use golf to cleanse its global reputation. Or Amnesty International says it's yet one more event in a series of sports-washing exercises that the Saudi authorities are using to clean its blood-soaked image. So, is this a flagrant case of sports-washing? The concept of countries with appalling human rights records sanitising their image by weaponising sports cultural power? Or are moralising Westerners just hand-wringing because their decades-old power monopoly is being challenged by a well-heeled newcomer? I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, Stuff senior sports journalist Dana Johansson and golf writer Michael Donaldson on how the new Live tournament has sent shockwaves through the world of golf, the ethical conundrums involved with sports washing and dirty money, and the cognitive dissonance involved with following any sport big enough to attract corporate sponsorship. Some people may know that for a long time, golf was an amateur sport, but there were always professionals. They played for money in terms of exhibitions and probably made most of their money gambling or playing matches against people for money. But eventually it was there were enough professional players who could justify making a circuit and people wanted to see them play. And we're talking literally 100 years ago, the early 1920s, this really started to, to gain momentum. And what is now the PGA Tour grew out of that circuit. And that circuit sort of moved along in America for 30 or 40 years until television came along. Pebble Beach, California, a seaside course unexcelled in beauty, design and unpredictable weather on the famous Monterey Peninsula. And in the 1960s, all this money started to roll in from TV and there was basically an argument over how this money should be spent. The grassroots organisation, for want of a better term, the wide PGA of America, wanted to start funneling the money into the development of the sport, for want of a better word. The players said, uh-uh, we're the ones bringing in the money. We deserve the money to flow to us. And so there was a split. Gene Littler's faced with a very touchy little shot. Fine shot, about five feet from the cup. And the PGA Tour was formed, an organising body that runs all the events, brings in all the sponsors, divvies up all the money. But it's not, and we, we, this is where it gets really interesting, it's not... It's not like a football team or New Zealand cricket or even New Zealand rugby that contracts the players. doesn't say, hey, Tiger Woods, come and sign for us and play exclusively for us and we'll give you this amount of money to do so. It literally says, we'll organise all this, we'll make all the money available, 
but the only way you make money is if you're good enough. Mm. So the the PGA Tour organization sets up all of the tournaments. Yep. It brings in all of the sponsors. It regulates the the product, as it were. Yep. But the players themselves are kind of freelancers. Yeah. And it's entirely meritocratic. Yeah. Yeah. A, a meritocracy is yep. the is the right term, and it's it's cutthroat. It is absolutely cutthroat sport. It's unlike any other sport, I think, because. Say if you're in a tennis tournament and you lose in the first round, you walk away with some money. Mm. You play a golf tournament, if you miss the cut where the field might start with 120, 40, 150 players, and then at the weekend they say only the top 70 are coming through to actually compete for money, the rest of you go home with nothing. 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 (laughs) Phil Mickelson is out. After shooting 11 over par the last two days, it was clear he didn't have it. Contrast that just for a moment with New Zealand cricket. You have a players' association that goes into bat for the players about how much of a share they should get of all the revenue. And then there's an assessment of the best players and they are contracted to New Zealand cricket Mm. and they get a fee. Kane Williamson is probably the number one contracted player uh, as the captain and he gets his base fee of whatever it is. I I wouldn't even like to stab it. Mm. I guess, you know, a few hundred thousand, let's say. Um, So they're saying that's your money, Kane, to play for us. New Zealand it's like cricket. a retainer fee. Yeah, yeah. a retainer is the best description for it. And on top of that, you'll get your match fees. And if you win the T20 World Cup or any other thing, you'll get prize money from the ICC that gets divvied up amongst the players. You can have your personal sponsorships and all that kind of stuff. Oh, and by the way, if you want to, you can go and play in the Indian Premier League as an independent contractor and take some money from them as well. Kane Williamson, this is the New Zealand batsman. I've got the opening bid, thank you, 150 bid now from the Sunrisers, Hyderabad, open the bidding for Kane Williams. The PGA Tour has nothing like that. <laughs> it's, um, they sort of basically, they're gatekeepers and they and everyone's clamouring to get in the gate. So and, American. Yeah. It's so American and, in a way, right? And there's no incentive except your own ability to win money. And then there's a lot of money to be won. For a good 50 plus years, this was the way of the golfing world. The PGA Tour held all the power. But then... Along came Live Golf. So join us, because the future we see is bright. The future of golf is here. For somebody who is not familiar with this and hasn't been following it, tell me about Live Golf. What what is it? Right, well, I mean, it's multifaceted to an extent in that the one aspect of it is that it's funded by the uh, the Saudi Arabian government's public investment fund, which is their, for want of a better word, their outward-facing marketing department. The awards include $170 million in prize money for individuals and another $85 million for teams. The minimum prize money for every participating golfer is $125,000. And that's investing in all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, I think Saudi Arabia sees that there is going to be a period beyond oil where they need to have some other revenue streams for the country. So they've got this public investment arm and it's got fingers in all sorts of pies. I mean, we're talking about sport. You know the whole thing where they bought the new Castle United football team. Fans were celebrating at St James's Park today on hearing their club's been bought by a consortium led by a Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund. They bring Formula One there. There's talk of tennis... Um, tournament in Saudi Arabia. UFC's gotten pretty big yeah. too, I think. Um, yeah. 
they've already, I think they've hosted three LPGA women's golf events, one of which Lydia Ko won and no one batted an eyelid. <laughs> so it's their way of, I don't know, driving future revenue. And you might say, okay, at this point they've spent roughly $2 billion out of their fund is worth at least $600 billion, I think. So $2 billion has been spent on capturing rebel players. Phil Mickelson's been paid $200 million, Dustin Johnson $125 million. Other players, millions upon millions of dollars to come and play on this circuit. And then there's prize money for the events. What's the return on the investment? At the moment, nothing. They can't even strike a broadcasting deal because potential partners don't want to alienate their relationships with the PGA Tour. But that hasn't stopped Saudi Arabia from ploughing cash into this project. And the players are taking it. Phil Mickelson's a great example. 30 years on the PGA Tour and he made $95 million in earnings. He's just earned $200 million just to play on this tour. As the equivalent of the New Zealand cricket retainer. Yeah. Who was two hundred million. His retainer is two hundred million versus ninety five million accrued over thirty years in prize money. And then if he wins tournaments in the yeah. live golf thing, then he'll get so extra there's money. More, there's more money to be earned. Tiger Woods is the biggest money earner in the history of golf and he won in prize money, he has won hundred and twenty million dollars. Dustin Johnson just got paid hundred and twenty five million dollars to go to live golf. So you can see the kind of numbers we're talking about in terms of if you're a young golfer and someone's saying, like, here's even $10 million. They're not going to earn that in their career if yeah. unless they are the absolute top tier. Yeah. Yeah. These guys, you know. So it is, it's a huge amount of money that has been offered just to come and play, just to come into the house. Now, a key part of all of this is why. Why is Saudi Arabia trying to muscle in on this territory? And there are a bunch of theories about this, with one being, as Michael alluded to earlier, economic prudence. Saudi Arabia, like many Gulf states, is mega rich because of its nationalised oil and gas reserves. But these countries can see the writing on the wall. They know they need to pivot. So they're pivoting to, among other things, tourism. If Saudi Arabia is holding big sports events every year, whether it's the Saudi Arabia Formula One Grand Prix or the world's biggest golf tournament or a bunch of UFC fights, it becomes a destination. And maybe when people who can afford such things are planning their golf holidays, they'll go to Riyadh rather than Scotland. But another more nefarious explanation is... Sports washing, using the event to distract from controversies over the country's record... The US government says there are credible reports of forced disappearances, torture by government agents, executions for non-violent offences. It also notes that women continue to face discrimination and that there is arbitrary arrest and detention. Several of the players who've signed up to Live Golf have been grilled about this at media conferences, which has led to some awkward situations. Is there anywhere in the world you wouldn't play? If Vladimir Putin had a, a tournament, would, would you play there? A speculation. Can't, not even going to comment on speculation. So, just in the generality, is there any way you wouldn't play on a moral basis? If the money was right, is there any way you wouldn't play? I don't, I don't need to answer that question. And some awkward quotes. 
Shipmate quotes Mickelson, they're scary motherfuckers to get involved with, he said. We know they killed Khashoggi, the Washington Post reporter, um, Jamal Khashoggi, and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. Dana Johansson is a senior sports journalist for Stuff. Sports washing is a term that we kind of use to describe the practice of countries or corporates um, using sport as a vehicle to kind of launder their reputation. So trying to deflect from maybe problematic human rights practices or dubious business practices by, I guess, tapping into that sports fandom and trying to legitimise their regime. And this is a thing that people talk about it a lot in the modern world of sport, but it has a very, fair to say, it has a very, well, a long history. Yeah, well, the term is, is relatively new, but the practice has probably been around for as long as sport has been around, really. And um, we look back to, I mean, the 1936 Olympics were held in Nazi Germany. And meanwhile, a packed stadium and flag-draped cheering streets greet Chancellor Hitler on his way to perform the opening ceremony. Old boxing matches, you remember, like the sort of rumble in the jungle. Um, they were they were taken to places like Zaire and Philippines as a way to kind of, I guess, show that that we can put on a good show as well, and we we love sport, and we're just like you, you know. When we think about you know the benefits of a country or a brand associating themselves with a sport, like what are the PR benefits of doing something like that? Yeah, so I think with a country like Saudi Arabia and some of those Gulf states, it is more about um, throwing open the doors and welcoming in the world and saying, hey, look, you and I, we're not so different. We know we all love sport and that's what bonds us. And it's really a way of kind of legitimising their country and their human rights record by kind of tapping into that mainstream sports fandom. But with countries like China and Russia that are probably getting more into that mega event space. It is a clear but wintry white evening over the golden city that is Beijing. But some of the world's brightest stars aiming to outshine their opponents at the Olympic Winter Games that is to come. That is less about, I guess, the external propaganda and more about um, building that sense of pride and nationhood within their own citizens and showing them that, hey, we've, we're putting on a good show for the rest of the world. We're, we're running a tight ship here and we're throwing a great party. And that that builds more loyalty among your own citizens. So they're, they're, it's multifaceted. How do you feel about it, about the idea of sports washing and money that people might consider dirty money um, being pumped into a sport and the athletes taking advantage of that? How do you feel about it? Where does it sit with you personally? Yeah, personally, I find it really concerning and quite troubling about where sport is going. And I think what sport needs to grapple with is how far down this path do you want to go? Because the further you go along the more kind of responsible corporates and brands you might want to be aligned with are going to be turned off to the idea of sport. And you sort of think, and we're already seeing a shift in the sponsorship market by these responsible corporates because sport isn't so much seen to be representing these pure ideals anymore. And it's not just because you've got international federations like FIFA and the IOC where there's widespread corruption and doping in in some sports is rife. Um, At a more local level, we see like athlete welfare scandals. So there is a reputational risk for brands to be aligned with sport nowadays. So what we're seeing is that brands are starting to go, hey, maybe we want to look at more social and environmental causes that we can invest in so that we look more socially responsible. I mean, you talk about the idea of responsible corporates. I put this to you. When you get to the thick end of sport, it is big industry. 
And the sponsors that are involved are companies like Nike and McDonald's, Ineos and Shell. And all of these companies can viably be accused of doing horrifying things. Just as Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia is different. It's a country, I suppose. Maybe there is a difference. But is there a difference, really? If you go far enough down this rabbit hole, isn't everybody dirty? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, I guess, why this is such a complex area and why there's so much kind of hypocrisy and whataboutism in this space. Because, I mean, even if you extrapolate it out further, it's like you look at what other companies the Saudis have invested in, and it's places like Uber and Starbucks and Disney and so are we complicit like I took an Uber here am I complicit in basically legitimizing an appalling human rights regime there's no simple answer to that like where where one draws the line is very much a personal thing it's mm-hmm. it's on the individual to decide so yeah I don't have an elegant answer to that but it's 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 confusing I and mean, when you when you go too far down the rabbit hole you're like yeah is all sport bad I think what sports rely on is people not considering those questions and not wanting to weigh that up because when fans kind of engage in sport, they're they're not really talking. They're they're more worried about what's happening on the field. They're not worried about those other equations and it's up for kind of human rights watch groups to sort of say, hey, is this a good thing? And I guess sports can get away with it because they know that while it might be a little bit uncomfortable and uncomfortable questions might be asked of them, actually when the action kicks off, you know, in Qatar... The state of Qatar says it has nothing to apologise for in hosting the Men's Football World Cup. The country has been criticised for its human rights record, attitudes towards minorities, as well as workers' conditions. People aren't going to care. Like, I, I... Bet my life, journalists will be talking about the lovely air-conditioned stadiums and how nice and clean they are by the time the event rolls around. And then, you know, once the action starts, we'll be talking about what's happening on the field. Well, yeah, I mean, you hit on a really interesting point there. And I'm glad that you brought up Qatar because um, this exposes my sort of hypocrisy. I think, personally, I think it's outrageous that Qatar has been given the World Cup. But when the tournament does kick off, I will be glued to it. And I put it to you that actually maybe this is something else that makes associating your brand with sport very beneficial is the cognitive dissonance that that fans will show. You know, your love for your team supersedes just about anything else. You'll accept anything in exchange for success. Absolutely, and we saw a really clear example of that with with a public investment fund uh, backed by the Saudi government investing in Newcastle United, and they were greeted like heroes at fans in their first home game. There were fans dressing up in traditional Middle Eastern garb to to celebrate this takeover by by uh, what is basically the Saudi government, and the fans are embracing it because they think, well, we're suddenly flush with cash, and that means titles and trophies and so yeah it's easy to kind of excuse it in that sense because when you love your team then you're like okay well this is good we've got money and let's go and so the whole pressure on these players is around you're taking this money from this awful regime that murdered uh the journalist uh so the pressure is all coming around this moral and ethical thing around saudi arabian money which to me is just a red herring. Really? I think it's the only thing, it's the only card the PGA Tour has to play is to discredit these people on a reputational level because, as I've said, we've, the LPGA has been there for three years and no one's batted an eyelid. Lydia Ko won a tournament in Saudi Arabia and all we had was coverage of Lydia Ko's fantastic victory. I don't think Formula One gets any bite back. 
you would know better than me. Perhaps have the UFC had any bite back? Well, I mean, I think I think this is this is an interesting and, and let's sort of let's pivot to talk a little bit about sports washing more broadly now because like I guess there is this point of view that is advanced that is like, well, here we have a country whose ruler, who is indeed the chairman of the sovereign wealth fund that has invested in Live Golf, he okayed an American journalist being, being murdered, murdered. Yep. and dismembered. Mm. It's a country where women can't own property. Yep. It's a country where if you have gay sex, you can get locked up. Yep. And that in Newcastle and Formula One and UFC and Live Golf, accepting the money and influence of the state and thereby normalising it through the colossal cultural mm. power of sport, that is something that no sporting body that has any integrity should be involved in. I really don't, you know, the ethical thing, I, until you're in that position, I, I don't know if you can... Yeah. judge people um, and if you're the players that are taking the money it's that you know it's that same old thing everyone has their price you know that joke you know well we've established what you are and now we're just haggling over the price yeah. kind of thing how do we know what Saudi Arabia is going to do in 20 or 30 years maybe they will become more westernised and all that uh, horrendous human rights abuses and the the way they treat women in particular. Maybe women will be driving cars and playing golf in Saudi Arabia. You don't know. Where do we go from here? The amount of money that's pumped into sport is not going to go down. The number of countries that seek to, or, or companies that seek to launder their reputations by associating themselves with sport is not going to dwindle or drop away. So if you love sport, but you don't like sports washing, what do you do? Yeah, that's the thing, because I, I think if fans actually voted with their feet and let organisations know that they don't consider taking money from these countries or from um, corporates with dubious business practices um, or poor kind of employment records, if they let them know that they don't find it acceptable and say, oh, I don't want to be part of this or I'm not going to watch sport anymore, then it might have an impact. But at the moment we're seeing, as I mentioned with, with Newcastle United example is that these organisations know that they can get away with it because the fans are still going to be engaged with sport. They're able to sort of push, push it aside and once the action gets started they're away. While I'm a journalist my, uh, my degree um, is in physical education of all things um, and I really loved back then studying sociology of sport and so I was at doing that in the 1980s and the big topic in that era was we were still just at the end of the Cold War yeah. and a lot of the texts that we studied were based around sport as a Cold War weapon um, and it was the whole USSR versus USA thing. Rocky Four. Yeah. Well, all the Olympics um, in that post, in that Cold War period were, it was all about cultural supremacy. But what that led to was probably the worst drug-taking era in the history of sport. The, People died. The, yeah, because um, we have to prove that we're the best. And the Americans were the same. And it was a... The the Cold War arms race was reflected in a... It's like a proxy a, an war. An arms race, yeah. Yeah, a proxy war. Where we are now, I don't think is anywhere near as bad as that, but it's changed quite significantly. But it's still about countries trying to elevate themselves in the eyes of the world. So it is no different to that. And that's the question of, well, where does that, where does that lead to? The English writer Nick Hornby once wrote of the moment many sports fans experience when they discover that 
loyalty in sports terms is not a moral choice like bravery or kindness. It's more like a wart or a hump. It's something you are stuck with. Maybe that's true. And maybe it's uncomfortable. And maybe stories like these will change the way fans like me think about the sports we love and the teams we love. And maybe they won't. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Dana Johansson and Michael Donaldson. Matewa. <laughs>